It's a great pleasure to start our year off by welcoming David Enoch to speak to us today. Uh, David is a professor of law and a professor of philosophy um, at the University of, uh, I'm sorry, at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I beg your pardon. Um, his publications are numerous, as you know, in moral philosophy and legal philosophy. He has a book published with OUP in 2011, Taking Morality Seriously, and then a series of papers in prominent journals, Against Public Reason, Oxford Studies in Political Philosophy, Agency, Schmagency in the Philosophical Review, and Why Idealize in Ethics. But today, David is going to talk to us about paternalism, and his title is What's wrong with paternalism, autonomy, belief, and action? So David, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Congratulations to Sue for starting the year in, in office. Um, oh, and I should also thank the uh, all-powerful committee who apparently works in mysterious ways, but nonetheless decided to invite me. So. So, so some people who write about paternalism are concerned with uh, coming up with a good definition for paternalism. Um, I don't care about definitions. This is not going to be uh, what I'm interested in here. What we want is a kind of uh, characterization of a phenomenon um, that may be sensitive to some of the underlying, in this case, moral concerns, um, and that may not do too much, um, too much injustice to our pre-theoretic intuitions to the extent that there are any about what is largely a technical term. And the more specific uh, uh, item in a characterization of paternalism that I'm interested in today has to do with the involvement of what looks like a suspicious or a disturbing belief, rather than something about action, in what makes paternalism wrong. So let me start with an example. They're going to be, let me give a few examples. Uh, the first example comes from comes from uh, uh, Jonathan Kwong, who is especially interested in showing that there can be a case of paternalism that does not involve anything like a restriction of liberty or a violation of an independent right or entitlement. So here's his example. A friend of yours asks for uh, 50 pounds. You're considering giving him uh, the money, and then you're deciding against it for the reason that he's likely to misuse the money in some specific way. Kwong thinks that this is a case of paternalism. Um, notice that there is no violation of liberty, or arguably of a pre-existing right. It's your money. It's not, it's not money your friend is entitled to on independent grounds. Well, what is wrong, if there is anything wrong, with such, uh, uh, with such an instance of paternalism? And Kwong plausibly identifies a belief. As a part of the story of what's going on here, there is a belief of yours about your friend. The belief is that your friend is not fully capable of uh, um, rational deliberation and behavior, or perhaps it's not so much about competence or abilities or capabilities, but at least about likely behavior. So you believe that your friend is unlikely to uh, behave rationally here. Perhaps he's likely to uh, uh, choose the wrong ends or make the wrong decisions or make the right decision, but then be weak-willed and not follow through, something, something along these lines. And Kuang seems to think that that belief is already objectionable and that it partly explains the purported objectionability of the paternalistic decision and action. 
Um, and we can see that the thought that there is such a belief that's a part of what makes paternalism wrong is very natural. It comes up nicely with other examples, and it also comes up in other writers, uh, on the, uh, in the text of other writers on the topic. I bring examples in the written version. I won't bore you with them now. But I will bore you with some examples because we're going to need them later on. So here's another example. Um, Paternalism happens in, in uh, interpersonal context as well as political ones. So another interpersonal one. Um, if my wife hides away the candy in our home uh, because she believes that I am likely to overeat, uh, to, to eat too much of it for my own good. So, so if she does it because she wants some candy, then it's not paternalistic. Right? But if she does it because, because out of concern for me and because of beliefs about my weak wills, then it seems to be paternalistic. It seems to be at least protanto objectionable. Maybe it's all things considered justified. That depends on how bad I am with it and how important it is and so on. But um, notice that Kuang's belief is there. She believes of me, perhaps not that I'm incompetent, but certainly that I am unlikely to uh, uh, resist the temptation as I... One lectern will be enough, I think. No, no, that's fine. Um, um, so, so the belief that I am unlikely to behave ration, rationally in the face of temptation is very much a part of the story. Um, or think about now a political case and uh, a case of what is now uh, fashionably called libertarian paternalism. This is the whole nudging phenomenon that you may have heard of. Um, so there seems to be rather strong, robust data showing that all of us tend to undersave for the far future if left to our own devices. And so some people think that this justifies all sorts of, of intervention by the state to ensure that we have enough by way of pension funds when we retire. There may be some interventions that are downright restrictions of liberty, but there needn't be. Uh, we know, for instance, that if you just have a very good pension plan that's introduced as the default, such that if you don't have to do it, you have to opt out, rather than that if you do want to do it, you have to opt in. This will make most of us settle for that. We don't like opting either out or in. We just stay with the default most of the time. Uh, and some people think that's a case of paternalism. And notice again that this kind of belief about uh, uh, our uh, the, 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 um, the improbability of our behaving rationally left to our own devices, that belief seems to, seems to uh, uh, be relevant there. And uh, so for other cases, too. So there's something very natural about the thought that this belief is a part of what characterizes paternalism, and indeed a part of what explains the, uh, its moral suspiciousness. But on the, on the other hand, there is also something very weird about that thought. Um, and the reason that it's weird is that whether or not you should believe of me that I'm going to under-save for retirement, whether or not you should believe of me that I'm going to misuse the money, whether or not my wife should believe of me that I'm going to overeat, these are, seem to be at least epistemic questions. They seem to be questions about what uh, justified belief is. So how is anything moral at all relevant there? And so we get to what is really the main topic of the paper, and that's the quest questions about how moral norms can, and if they can, govern beliefs at all. And so I proceed to uh, number two on the handout now. So here's an example from a different context. Suppose uh, the evidence shows rather clearly that I'm the tallest member of my department. Um, well, in that case, what you should believe is that I'm the tallest member of my department. Furthermore, that's what I should believe too. Right? Morality seems to be entirely irrelevant. It's just about the evidence. And uh, the relevant norms here are also, in an important sense, impersonal. 
So long as you and I are privy to the same set of evidence, then if, I be, if you should believe that I'm the tallest person in my department, so should I. Okay, second case. Suppose the evidence shows that I'm the smartest member of my department. Evidence can show that, right? Okay, it's a little tough, it's a little vague, they're going to be borderline cases, but sometimes it's very clear who the smartest person in the department is, right? Ask the grad students, they know. Um, well, in that case, um, what should I believe? And in, in one respect, the situation seems exactly similar to the situation with, uh, with my being tallest in my department. <laughs> what you should believe is what the evidence supports. If that's what the evidence supports, that's, that's what you should believe. And here's some more evidence. What should you believe about who's the smartest person in the department if the evidence shows that it's me? In that case, it's very clear that that's what you should believe. And indeed, we may fault you for not believing in accordance with the evidence on such a case. But on the other hand, morality does not seem to be irrelevant. And there does seem to be something personal here. So the impersonality of the epistemic norms is, seems to be violated. Because if I do believe this, I will be arrogant. And there seem to be moral reasons against arrogance. And furthermore, at least if we hold, there are going to be some levels of evidential support such that it's okay for you to believe that I'm the smartest person of the department, but it's not okay for me to believe that. Or anyway, that's a plausible thought to have in such cases. So we may want to explain this. It seems like moral norms here are relevant to what you should believe. That's problematic. So there's a bunch of explanations we can think of, explanations that I call in the paper de-radicalizing explanations. These are explanations of why you should believe, uh, why perhaps I should not believe that I'm the smartest person in the department, even when the evidence supports that belief. But they are de-radicalizing in the sense that they don't require any kind of moral governing of beliefs. So I give some on the hand. Right? Perhaps, for instance, what is really non-virtuous here is not so much believing that I'm the smartest when that's what the evidence supports, but even wondering about that to begin with. Right? The really virtuous person doesn't, at least is not obsessed with thoughts of comparative cleverness. Right? Um, so perhaps uh, uh, what we're criticizing you for is for even entertaining such thoughts, or perhaps you should have a mechanism where uh, when the evidence starts to come in and you, it starts to look as if an arrogant conclusion will be called for, maybe then you should disengage. Right, in order to avoid that. That doesn't mean that the moral norms govern the beliefs directly, but they govern something in the vicinity. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is that we know something about human psychology. We know that all of us, certainly some of us, tend to uh, um, um, fall prey to all sorts of self-serving biases. Um, and knowing this, you may want to uh, endorse a kind of a second-order policy that says that whenever the evidence seems to you to support an arrogant conclusion, that's a very good reason to reconsider the evidence, ask someone who uh, um, is really a truth lover, even against norms of politeness or something, or anyway, just reduce your confidence, because you know that you've employed a kind of a epistemic method that is not very reliable. So that's another uh, de-radicalizing explanation. And of course, there's a whole host of moral norms that govern what you should do about it, about actions. So even if the evidence does support that, uh, uh, the conclusion that you're the smartest person in the room, and even, um, and even if that's exactly what you should believe, it doesn't follow that you should go around saying that all the time or acting on it in, in other ways. Now, some people actually analyze uh, arrogance in terms of what you do and not 
what you believe, it seems to me that the full phenomenon of, of uh, arrogance or of modesty includes stuff about beliefs too. So I don't think it's just uh, this kind of thing. Um, we can describe cleaner cases though. So we can describe cases in which, at least hypothetical cases, in which it seems clear that what's at stake is the belief and nothing else, right? So suppose uh, uh, the evidence comes in about anonymous members of the department. The evidence starts to come in, and uh, you, so you form an opinion or a belief that the person of whom this description is true is the smartest person in the department. And then you find out that it's you, right? something like this. Should you now reduce confidence? or discard the belief. Or so I'm going to return to some of these cases, some of these cases later on. If you're an evidentialist about if you're an evidentialist in epistemology, you believe roughly that what we should believe is entirely determined by the evidence. Evidence is here understood rather broadly. So it includes everything that epistemically supports uh, supports uh, beliefs. So for instance, a priori argument arguments in philosophy count as evidence and perhaps some intuitions, perhaps, some other things, too. Um, so uh, if you're an evidentialist, of course, you cannot allow moral norms to play this role in governing beliefs directly. So what you say is that with regard to the cleaner case, what you should believe is what's supported by the evidence. And with regard to our intuitions pulling in different directions, you're just going to go for the de-radicalizing explanations and argue that, on the whole, perhaps together, they suffice. No, there is no further phenomenon to be explained. Um, the evidentialist answer also has, uh, I think, su supporting it, a nice comparison case. So suppose uh, the evidence shows that I'm the member of my department with most uh, citations on Google Scholar. That's a case that's very easy, right? It's very easy to analyze the evidence there. You just Google us. It's not that hard. Um, it seems that when we, the evidence supports that, that is what I should believe, right? Our intuitions are not the same as they are with regard to the smartest person in the department, even though in some contexts that will also be an arrogant belief, right? Well, what explains that then? And the, the evidentialist has a, a, a nice and easy explanation. When it comes to who has the, uh, the largest number of citations on Google Scholar, the evidence is overwhelmingly strong. So you should follow the evidence, and that's it. The de-radicalizing explanations just don't work. How self-biased do you have to be in order to misread the numbers of Google Scholar? Right? It just doesn't work. And that the difference between this case and who's the smartest case seems to indicate that the problem with the smartest case is not that the moral norm governs the belief, but rather that the evidence is not sufficiently strong, that it's too vague, that the uh, danger of self-bias is much more serious, something along these lines. So much for the detour on arrogance. Let's go back now to the discussion of uh, uh, to the discussion of paternalism. Um, what an evidentialist will say about paternalism is quite similar. Whether my wife should believe that I'm going to overeat uh, candy uh, depends on the evidence, and that's it. There are all sorts of other moral questions that we can ask, including whether it's okay for her to intervene in some way. But the belief, the belief is fully governed by the evidence, and that's it. There is nothing wrong with the belief. And so there is nothing about the wrongness of the belief that can explain the wrongness of paternalistic intervention. Of course, the belief may be not well supported by the evidence. In that case, we can criticize my wife for having that belief, right? But the criticism there is going to be epistemic. It's not going to be 
Mormon. And similarly for the other cases, right? So the evidence about undersaving for the far future, these, the, the, the evidence as far as I can, um, as far as I understand, uh, is overwhelmingly strong. So that's the thing to believe. You're not wronging anyone by having a true belief about them that responds well to the evidence, right? You may be wronging them by treating them in certain ways, and we'll get to that, but that's a different, a different point. Okay, um, let me just say quickly, um, in the way I described the examples from the beginning, this is the bracketed comment at the end of number two, I uh, talked about either beliefs about incompetence or beliefs about likely irrational behavior. I actually think that incompetence is entirely beside the point, and it's at least rhetorically important. So, uh, if, I, if my wife hides the candy, she in no way implies that she thinks I am incompetent, that I cannot resist temptation. What she thinks is that I am unlikely to. She may also think that I cannot, but that doesn't do any work here. It's just about, it's just about uh, like this. This makes a difference. It's important because you may think that incompetence is related to moral status. Um, but likely behavior, need not, so I, there's, I don't take anything away from your nature as, I don't know, rational in the Kantian sense when I uh, suspect that you're going to undersave for retirement, if the evidence shows that rather clearly. Okay. So um, the, the next two sessions are, there's something a, a bit uh, frustrating about the structure of the paper. So, so at the end of the paper, I'm going to endorse the evidentialist response. But the next two sessions are attempts to uh, resist it. And I think they, are, they raise some interesting points in their own right, and I'm going to also explain why at the end I don't think they will save the paternalist. Um, this may be worth doing because you may want to proceed, as is often the case in philosophy, in the opposite direction. You may want to say something like, well, I see that evidentialism is plausible, and so on, but, but you know what? You shouldn't believe you're the smartest person in the department, even when the evidence does show that and similarly for some other cases. And if evidentialism rejects that, so much the worse for evidentialism, right? So we need, we need uh, uh, well, we need more cases, I think. And we also need some more theorizing. So here's a case coming from Sarah Stroud. Um, there's also a, a related paper by Keller, I think. Um, Stroud talks of epistemic partiality. And the thought there is something like this. Suppose evidence comes in about a friend of yours that they behaved um, shamefully in some in some, in some way. Um, Stroud thinks that as a friend, you have a duty to resist that evidence, at least to an extent. So roughly, um, you should be more willing than strangers to uh, invest resources in trying to come up with alternative explanation of the evidence. You should give it more thought by trying to think whether there are ways of interpreting the evidence in a way that does not reflect so poorly on your friend's character or behavior. And perhaps also, importantly different, but perhaps also, there are going to be levels of evidential support such that it's okay, perhaps even epistemically required for, you, for a stranger to believe that your friend acted shamefully, but that it won't be okay for you so to believe. And the reason is that she's your friend. Okay. So it's, a, it's, it's the epistemic analog of practical partiality. And we know that practical partiality plays a huge role in friendship and in other close relationships. And similarly, Stride wants to, to suggest for uh, epistemic, relevant epistemic norms. And uh, uh, she suggests two possible ways of accommodating this data. 
One is to think that there, there's a kind of dualism involved of relevant norms. Your beliefs about your friend's shameful behavior are governed by the epistemic norms, and they are also governed by the moral norms of friendship and partiality, and these norms are sometimes in, in conflict. So there are going to be cases in which, as she says, friendship requires epistemic irrationality. That's one option. The other option is that uh, perhaps somehow the moral norm norms infiltrate the epistemic norms themselves so that there is no conflict. And even epistemically, you shouldn't believe that your friend behaved shamefully, even though the stranger should. Okay? Um, it's not entirely clear in Stroud's paper what, how to best make sense of this second suggestion. One possible way of making sense of it is the next session, the next section. So I'm going to postpone this for now. Um, now, you see that it may be relevant for paternalism as well. So you may think, for instance, that um, perhaps my wife has a duty to me. Perhaps I have a duty, not, not uh, uh, perhaps as a part of the obligations that are part of my relationship with my wife, she has the duty not to too easily believe of me that I will succumb to temptation once again and have more candy. Perhaps this is true of my duty to my friend who wants the, the money. Perhaps this is also true of us and citizens in general when it comes to uh, evidence about undersaving for the, for the far future, something, something along, along these lines. Um, so it may be relevant for the uh, paternalism case as well. But I don't think it will help too much. And I have two reasons for this. Um, the first is that Stroud is not as clear as he probably should have been about the distinction between the clean epistemic case and other cases. So the question how much, by way of resources, I'm willing to invest in coming up with alternative explanations, that's not an epistemic question. That's a pra practical one. It's about money or time, or my next actions. It's not about beliefs, right? So the thought that I should be willing to put more resources into finding out exonerating explanations in a case of a friend compared to a case of a stranger, that thought is not paradoxical in any way. Or anyway, it's a case of practical partiality. And assuming that practical partiality is not paradoxical, neither is this. It's not a case of epistemic partiality. And some of the plausibility of what Stroud says, I think, is attributable to that, to this some of the relevant cases being practical rather than epistemic. But she also wants the cleaner case, um, I think. She certainly says that uh, it's also about beliefs and not just about the actions in the vicinity of the belief. Um, so once again, let us describe the easy case. That, sorry, the clean case. It's going to be a hard case for her. The clean case is going to be a case in, w in which anonymous, anonymous evidence starts to come in about the shameful behavior of someone. You carefully wait, because we shouldn't believe too quickly about anyone that they behave shamefully, and you come to the conclusion that it's sufficiently strong evidential support. So you believe that the person of whom this description is true behaved shamefully. Then you find out it's your friend. Should you now withhold judgment? Should you reduce your confidence? Similarly, in the other direction, right? So uh, the evidence comes in, and as far as you know, it's about a friend of yours, so you resist belief so f f for now. And then you find out that it was a mistake. Actually, it's about someone else. So now you believe that they behaved shamefully. That seems problematic. So I think that the Stroud line, though really interesting and enlightening about some phenomena in the vicinity, I'm not sure I'm willing to buy it when it comes to the cleanest case, which is the case we're most interested in also in the paternalism case. To the extent that the 
Stroud intuition doesn't go or doesn't go as well with regard to the clean case, um, she won't be able to help the kind of thought about paternalism that I'm investigating here. The second point is um, that the paternalism case may be, in some ways, a less plausible candidate for Stroud than the case she's working in. Or anyway, one kind of paternalism case. So as I mentioned, we distinguish with regard to paternalism between cases of uh, interpersonal paternalism and cases of political or institutional paternalism. Um, now, Stroud's paper, and more importantly, the underlying Stroud intuitions, are about partiality. But institutional or political paternalism is not about partiality at all. And while you may be willing to say that uh, uh, um, partial norms or partial relationships call for epistemic irrationality, the thought that politics requires epistemic irrationality seems to be harder to go for. Um, she may have a, an easier time with cases of interpersonal paternalism, like the case between me and my friend or, or me and my wife, uh, but it's not clear. I mean, so the question of how does intimacy or closeness affect the uh, permissibility of paternalistic intervention is a really complicated one, and it's highly context-dependent. So, of course, there are going to, going to be mild paternalistic interventions that are legitimate if they come from my wife, but not if they come from a stranger or a student of mine. But it's complicated. It's going to involve all sorts of things. Maybe she owes me not to believe too ill of me, but on the other hand, she also has better information, and she's also she also gets a lot of leeway that strangers don't get. It, it's going to be a mess of all sorts of considerations. Okay, so I'm proceeding to number four on the handout now. Um, this is going to be the second attempt of rejecting evidentialism. This is going to be modeled on something that I think is quite fashionable in uh, uh, in epistemology now, and that's the thought sometimes referred to as pragmatic encroachment that uh, pragmatic considerations find a way of encroaching on epistemology in general. So let me give one of the standard examples that are used in this general phenomenon and then return to our paternalism case or to related cases. So these are called bank cases. And what's going on in them is that uh, um, you drive, uh, and you drive um, along the, you, you, see, you see your bank, your branch. You need to make a deposit. It's Friday. Um, but there's a huge line, so you're considering just postponing to tomorrow. And the question comes up whether the bank's open on a Saturday. And you remember you saw it open a couple of weeks ago. So you say, sure, it's open. And you're also happy to self-attribute knowledge. Say, I know that it's open on Saturdays based on this evidence. And we seem to be happy with attributing knowledge to you and with okaying your self-attribution and everything is okay. Second case. Same as before, except the stakes are really high. So if you don't make the deposit by Sunday, we lose our home. Suddenly, we're not that sure about attributing knowledge, nor are you likely to be confident enough to say such a thing, right? Um, but that's not clear. Surely knowledge is an epistemic notion, and why should the pragmatic stakes be relevant to it? Um, so people who are into pragmatic encroachment think that or at least one natural way of, of understanding the thought, is that um, the level of evidential support that suffices for knowledge depends on pragmatic stakes. Um, so we didn't change the evidence, that's true. What we did change is the contextually defined standard of, of evidential support that's needed for knowledge. That's why you did know, but now you don't. 
as you can imagine, that's a controversial matter. Um, but there is some plausibility to it. For instance, based on, on such uh, uh, intuitive cases, there are also some theoretical motivations. I'm gonna use one, I'm gonna mention one in a second. Well, if you're into pragmatic encroachment, there is absolutely no reason you shouldn't be into moral encroachment either. Uh, a term that I thought I was inventing. Um, unfortunately, that's not the case. David Pace has a nice paper in it that I rely on in the paper, and uh, I saw one other person too. Um, so, you may want to use it uh, to uh, uh, vindicate the thought that there is something, a problematic judgment that partly explains the wrongness of paternalism. The way to do that would be to say something like the following. Look, beliefs should be based on the evidence. That's true. However, the level of evidential support that's needed for knowledge depends on the pragmatic stakes, including on moral stakes. So when you're going to believe something, uh, when you're going to believe about your friend that they behave shamefully, for that to qualify as knowledge, or perhaps to satisfy some other, some other epistemic standard, for that, you're going to need more evidential support than you would have needed in order to believe something that's morally neutral. There is some plausibility to this thought, right? Um, some, some of the, uh, I think some of the appeal of pragmatic encroachment in general has to do with the relation between knowledge or some other epistemic status, but usually knowledge and action. The thought is roughly that to know a proposition is either is or is closely related to being entitled to use it as a premise in your practical reasoning. Well, clearly what you're entitled to use as a premise in pr practical reasoning depends on the stakes. If knowledge is closely tied to that, whether or not you know should depend not just on the evidence, but also, also on the stakes. Um, and that may apply to the moral case. And I think it gets many of the cases we started with very nicely. So I think moral encouragement should get much more attention than it has so far. It gets the friend case, right? I gave that example. Um, it gets the arrogance case, quite, at least, no, depending on how exactly your intuitions go there, right? Uh, but you may think, yeah, in order to believe this of me, certainly in order for that belief to be justified or warranted or anyway knowledge, I need much more evidential support than, I need in order, uh, than you need in order to believe that of me. Because arrogance is the kind of moral stakes that raises the bar. Right? That's plausible. It also gets nicely distinction between the smart case and the Google Scholar case. Because in the Google Scholar case, the evidence is so overwhelmingly strong that it presumably it's presumably over the threshold, even if the threshold has been raised by what's morally at stake. So it does get many of these cases uh, very nicely. Um, okay, then how about paternalism? And here again, I am going to suggest uh, some mild disappointment. Um, so the relevant belief here is the belief that you are unlikely to save enough for retirement or that my friend is likely to misuse the money or something along these lines. Um, and the thought is that in order to be justified or wanted or anything, any way for that belief to amount to knowledge, what you need is much more evidential support than would have sufficed for a more neutral uh, belief. Now that won't get many of the paternalism cases right because crucially what this pragmatic encroachment does is just raise the threshold. But it doesn't raise it all the way up to impossibility. And in many paternalism cases, the evidence is overwhelmingly strong. So the ev evidence seems to be well above any plausible way of placing the threshold, even taking moral stakes into account. 
So in the case of undersaving for retirement, I take it the evidence is overwhelmingly strong. And let me uh, assure you that in the case of uh, the danger that I will overeat some candy, the evidence is in. No doubt remain. Um, so it's not... Uh, so even if you are going for moral encroachment, you're still going to have a belief that passes the higher threshold and so that it's not objectionable and so that its purported objectionability cannot explain the problem with the paternalistic intervention. Um, so at least it's not going to fit many of the other, many of the other cases. Um, also, interestingly, if you go for a kind of pragmatic encroachment line here, then I think we've gone in a kind of a circle. What was exciting about the, the thought the Kuang and Schifrin and some other characterization of paternalism in terms of a belief was that something about a belief explained the wrongness of action. But if now you explain how moral norms can govern beliefs in terms of pragmatic encroachment, what ultimately does the work is once again pragmatic norms or practical norms, not epistemic norms. They, they go via an epistemic detour. But what ultimately explains the problem with the action is something about action. So we, haven't, so we can just talk about actions now. Or anyway, the suspicion arises that the detour via beliefs is unnecessary. So there's a kind of an emerging dilemma uh, uh, from the uh, last two uh, sections. At least if these are the only ways in which moral norms can govern beliefs, then uh, they can either do it via uh, directly, by you shouldn't believe this because that would be immoral, or via moral encroachment. If the former, it just seems implausible, at least in our context, in the context of paternalism, for the reasons that I gave. If it's the latter, if it's about moral encroachment, then it seems really interesting, and perhaps even applies in some of these cases, but not remotely in all of the paternalism cases. And anyway, there's something somewhat less interesting about it, because at the end of the day, you're explaining wrongness in terms of practical rather than epistemic norms. So at this point, I'm happy to, well, I'm willing to conclude that, um, at least with regard to our case, the evidentialist is right. What you should believe about um, persons' likelihood to behave irrationally uh, depends on the evidence, not on, uh, not on their moral status or on any other moral considerations, at least in the paternalism cases. Um, but that creates a kind of disturbing gap, a kind of a mismatch between what presumably will make paternalism wrong, that's going to be something about practical norms, not something epistemic, not about your beliefs. And what the paternalized is likely, at least in a large, in a, uh, a large group of cases, what the paternalized is likely to be most upset about. So think again about the friend and the money. Your friend wants the money, that's why they asked it. But suppo suppose they, they, find, they then find out that you, you decided not to give them money because of your belief that you, they're going to misuse it. So they may resent that. They may resent the belief. In fact, they may resent the belief much more than they resent you deciding not to give them the money. Right? That doesn't prove that what I said is wrong, but it does create a challenge. Right? According to... Uh, my sort of emerging account, what's going to explain the wrongness of the paternalistic intervention is going to have nothing essential to do with that belief, or anyway, nothing epistemic to do with that belief. But what they seem to care about is the belief. And it, does, it doesn't seem to be irrational either, right? We often care deeply about what people believe about us. And it seems like we are at least sometimes entitled so to care. Certainly it's not a, it's not a clear case of conceptual confusion. 
Um, so I want to say two things about this. So, so at the end of the day, I just bite the bullet. Say that's true, and we're going to have to learn to live with it. That sometimes what we care most about in some action is not the feature that is most relevant to its moral status. Even what we resent most about an action is not the feature that explains the moral wrongness of the action. I don't think this is the only case in which it happens. So, I, so my biting the bullet here is not ad hoc, I think. But it still amounts to somewhat counterintuitive result. Uh, but I do want to uh, say two more things here. One is that while it's very clear how this works in, inter in close relationships, interpersonal cases, it's not clear how it works in political cases. Uh, to uh, those, uh, the righteous of you who have actually read the paper, I think the way I put it in the paper is too strong, so let me qualify it a little bit. In the paper, I say something like, it just doesn't make sense to care about what the state believes of you. That's the case that's going to be relevant for political, institutional paternalism. I don't think that's, that, that's at the very least, unhelpfully strong. Um, I do think, though, that it's not clear that it is rational so to believe. It is rational to believe what your spouse or partner or friend or children or colleagues think of you in many contexts. Um, but it's not clear to me that it's as rational to have similar concerns about what the state believes of you, perhaps partly because state beliefs amount to different things than individual beliefs. Perhaps they are best understood functionally, and perhaps once understood functionally, they are at the end of the day about actions. And so what you care about at the end of the day is about actions or perhaps dispositions or something along these lines. But anyway, the point, I, so I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to fix this, but the point that I care about here is just to say that the plausibility of being upset about what a friend believes of you does not transmit immediately to the political case. The second point is, I think, a more interesting one. And that's that uh, it's not clear how to best make sense of your friend caring about your belief that they're going to misuse the money. Um, so these are hypothetical cases. We can stipulate whatever we want about them, right? Um, I'm not, it's not a psychological investigation into a real person's going on, right? But it seems to me much more plausible that in many cases what's going to, what's going to be happening in such cases is something like the following. What your friends want is not for you to ignore the evidence and then to believe that they're going to use the money wisely. What your, friends want, what your friend wants is for you to have a hard look at the evidence and based on the evidence conclude that they're going to use the money wisely. That's what they want. That's what I would want. Right? It, it doesn't seem to appease their, their concern to say something like, you're right, you're my friend, so the hell with the evidence. Right, that, that, um, what they really want is, I'm not even sure how to best, I'm not sure it's coherent, so I'm not sure how best to describe it, because it's coherent, it may be incoherent, but um, roughly what they want is for your friendship to color the evidence in the right way. Or perhaps what they want, what they really, really want is for the evidence to support the conclusion that they are going to use the money wisely. That seems to be what's really at stake. But notice that if that's really the concern, then it's not practical. And it's more a wish than a practical, intention-relevant kind of concern, right? What they, they just wish that that's what the evidence supported. 
Um, and that wish is entirely understandable. It's intelligible as a wish. But it's not clear that it gives reasons for action, at least, at least not in the ways that desires and concerns and carings and intentions and some other things of this kind do. Notice also that this wish is not personal at all. It's just not about you. You're at this point out of the picture. What your friend really wishes is for the evidence to support a better conclusion about them. And then they also want you to be sensitive to that. There may, may, maybe there are other things you could say here. For instance, some of the de-radicalizing explanations apply. Certainly your friend may want you to invest more uh, intellectual resources into uh, coming up with, with better explanations. That's, that's, that's entirely plausible, right? Um, but anyway, to the extent that what's going on here is really this impractical wish, um, the fact that, it does, that that does not explain the wrongness of paternalism is no longer a reason against my account. Okay, so drawing to a close, um, if I'm right, there's nothing suspicious about the belief that a person is going to uh, act irrationally. Well, there may be if the evidence doesn't support it. But so long as the evidence does support it, there's nothing problematic about that belief. And so now the question is, what, what is wrong with paternalism when, in fact, it is wrong, at least pro tanto? So it seems to me that if, you, uh, if the evidence strongly supports the conclusion that your friend is going to misuse the money, that gives you a reason not to give them the money. Uh, perhaps it also cancels the reason to give them the money. I don't know, something, something along these lines. And usually you should act on the reasons that you know are relevant. Now you know that it's going to misuse the money. Usually you should act on such reasons. How can there be something problematic then about paternalism? Um, and so I give an, uh, a sketch of an answer uh, in two parts. One structural, showing that it's possible. And one... Uh, substantive. The structural bit uh, takes advantage of Joseph Raz's helpful mechanism of uh, exclusionary reasons. These are reasons that we sometimes have not to act for reasons that apply to us. And that's one thing that you could say about the paternalism case. So you could say the following, the fact that your friend will misuse the money, that gives you a reason not to give them the money. However, something else, perhaps even your friendship, gives you a reason not to act for that reason. It's a nice logical structure. We can talk about. We can talk more about uh, exclusionary reasons uh, during the discussion, if you want. Of course, that we found a place in logical space to say something like, doesn't mean that it's actually manifested here. So we need something substantive to say. Uh, we can, uh, but it's not going to be hugely surprising. So I think that what uh, um, is substantively at work here is uh, something like the value of personal autonomy. So uh, when there are cases of paternalism, the irrational behavior of others, and you know or anyway justifiably believe that they are going to behave irrationally, gives you a reason to intervene. But perhaps something about their personal autonomy, their, the value of and perhaps their entitlement to be the authors of their own life story, to make their own lives, something like this. Something like this gives you a reason to act in all sorts of ways. It also gives you an exclusionary reason. Their personal autonomy gives you a reason not to act for the reason that they are likely to behave irrationally. So uh, the value of autonomy can uh, explain the, uh, uh, ex the relevant exclusionary reason. Here's how it may be morally objectionable to paternalize it even when the belief that someone is going to behave irrationally is 
justified and may amount to knowledge. The value of autonomy here is relevant, and it's relevant in ways that sometimes create exclusionary reasons. They create reasons not to act for the reason given by the irrational behavior of the paternalist. Um, notice that I think phenomenologically it gets some of these cases right. So if your friend complains that you should have given him the money, or anyway, that if you don't give him the money, you shouldn't have given him the money for that reason, right? So you should, sorry, you shouldn't have avoided giving him the money for that reason. Um, notice that this is almost as close as we get in natural language to asserting an exclusionary reason. And so your friend can say, look, if you need the money, that's fine. If you just want to use the money for something else, that's okay too. But don't withhold the money on the basis of the belief that so-and-so. That's, that gets very close to, an exclusion, to, to stating an exclusionary reason. Of course, your friend may disagree with you about whether they're likely to misuse it, but that's a, that's a different point. Um, there's also a nice relation to uh, a kind of uh, um, none-of-your-business phenomenon. Right? So if your friend complains about this, she's unlikely to get into discussion of whether or not her use will promote her well-being or not. Right? She's more likely to say something like, this is not even the kind of consideration you should be taking into account. And once again, a good way of accommodating that is this Razian way of an exclusionary reason. I also think it nicely gets right the Kuang example that we started with. Um, remember, for Kuang, the, the, the point of the, of the friend and money example was to show how an act can be paternalistic and morally objectionable even when it does not involve violating liberty or a pre-existing right. Well, we now have a partial explanation of how that's the case. So if I were to use the money myself, I wouldn't be violating any right. That's okay. Um, but that doesn't mean that there is no violation of a right here. The right is the right that comes with the exclusionary reason. Right? So maybe my friend is not entitled to my giving him the money, but my friend may very well be entitled to my either giving him the money or not giving the money for another reason. In other, in other words, maybe he's entitled to my not avoiding giving him the money for the reason that he's likely to misuse it. And he may be entitled to that in virtue of the value of autonomy. So notice, on this account, beliefs about the irrational behavior of others are still relevant, but they are relevant in a different way. There is no epistemic problem with them. If they are relevant, they are relevant via the value of autonomy. And it's all about actions and moral status. It has nothing to do with, uh, with beliefs. I end the paper with a speculative point about how I, how I think that this is a, uh, uh, may be a part of a larger project that I hope to get to at some point. And that's the larger project. I sometimes call it something like the procedural law of morality, um, about which there is hardly any writing as far as I know, um, including the evidence law for morality. So I give an example of inadmissible evidence. In many cases in law, uh, some of you may have heard about the, uh, um, the rule of the, the fruits of the forbidden tree, I think it's called, in evidence law, whereby if the police obtains evidence illegally, the evidence is inadmissible. Of course, often it's very strong evidence. That's why the battle about admissibility is being uh, uh, fought at all. Presumably, we have an exclusion. We have a reason not to decide for that reason. The second order reason, the exclusionary reason is, I guess it's often said, that's the only way of incentivizing the police not to, not to conduct illegal searches, right? Something, something like this. 
So this is well-trodden territory. Um, here's something new, though. Can there be morally inadmissible evidence? If you've obtained some uh, evidence that shows that I behaved immorally, but you've obtained it immorally, do we want to say that now you are no longer entitled to blame me? Because it was obtained immorally. So I don't... Interesting questions, I think, come up there. But I hope you see how they are relevant to the general question about the interplay of moral and epistemic norms in governing beliefs, and perhaps also to the case of paternalism. So perhaps there's going to be some evidence regarding irrational behavior that perhaps the state should bracket. That's easy. That's a legal case again. But that perhaps we should also bracket in interpersonal relations. Then it's going to be a part of this moral inadmissibility of evidence point. But as I said, that's speculative and left for another day, probably another year. So I'm going to stop here. Thank you.